Hey, it's Greg. Thanks for listening to the Toronto Today podcast for Thursday, May the 5th. We got a lot on the show today. We dive into the issue we didn't know would get to the House of Commons, and we didn't even know it would be a provincial election issue. And that's the right uh, between that's the uh, conversation between being pro-choice and pro-life. And it's filtered up here after the Supreme Court news leak about Roe v. Wade. So we get into that issue. Andrea Horvath, NDP Ontario leader on the show as well, the official leader of the opposition, as she gears up for a four-week intense campaign to become Ontario's next premier. It's all coming up on Toronto Today, which starts now. I don't remember in 1988. I remember a lot of things in 1988. That's the Seoul Olympics. That's my first full year of driving a motor vehicle. Uh, You turn 16 and big things happen. So 1988, let's dig into this. But I don't remember the landmark decision uh, that changed the country's abortion law and has kept it as is, in essence, for 34 years. Uh, By a 5-2 decision, the Supreme Court held that Section 251 of the Criminal Code was of no force or effect. It violated the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. In essence, uh, 1988, the Supreme Court declared uh, it, it was unconstitutional to arrest someone Um, for uh, an abortion procedure. The section stated everyone has the right to life, liberty, and the security of the person and the right not to be deprived thereof except in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice. But they couldn't, that's section seven, they couldn't enforce that because it violated the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. No one wrote a majority judgment. We we do so little on this. And I, I said this yesterday, and this is obviously true, we don't talk about the Canadian Supreme Court. We don't we don't worry about who's going to live or die while still being on the Supreme Court. We don't talk about how many liberals or conservatives or people who lean left or people who lean right or people who try to play it right up the middle. We don't do those things. But important to point out, in 88, the Supreme Court did try and enact a new abort. The Mulroney government tried to put a new uh, abortion law through. They had their second majority government uh, on the way. So they did this in the spring of 1988. Now, access ends up being one of the big things, I think. Jugmeet Singh, even yesterday, the NDP leader, made a couple points I wanted to get to. He made the point about uh, concern south of the border. Now, I think one thing he says is very true. The other I don't think is like it's not a mistruth. But I just don't think this is on the minds of 36 million Canadians. Let me play you what he said and you figure out which is which. And then we'll see if we agree together on it. It is something that's deeply concerning and worrying to so many people. Um, Canadians are worried about the impact that might have on Canada. Uh, Women are worried about what that means about their fundamental rights to have control over their own bodies. And, And I just can't imagine how scary it must be to live in America right now for people, for women waking up yesterday and and seeing that leak and today thinking about the consequences of what that means to their own freedom of their bodies. uh, It's just, it's horrific to think about. Okay. The latter part, he's got it right. He's got it right. It's a concerning time in the United States to think about those things and your rights and access, which are two very different things. I don't think it's on the mind of Canadians. And I, I absolutely, I tell you when I get stuff wrong, I misread this story 48 hours ago thinking, well, we're just going to sort of shrug our shoulders here and not have our own conversations about it. We're going to look south of the border and some people will go, oh, what a what a political hellscape. That's just what Jugmeet Singh said, worrying to be a woman down there, worrying to be a younger woman, quite obviously, because these are often conversations you have not after you've had kids, not after you've you know been married and been a parent or been divorced or, or whatever. 
Those aren't or think, well, we we only want three kids. We don't want four. We only want two. We don't want three. Those aren't those aren't abortion conversations. I think we can agree on that. Abortion is discussed is discussed in obviously cases of uh, sexual assault, a, a, a crime as horrific as incest. And it's discussed among teenagers and people in their early 20s who decide I do I am not ready to be a parent yet. I won't be a good parent. And I don't also want a child to stop. I won't be as good as I can be as a parent to the kid. So the kid suffers and I will suffer as well. And everybody around me will. We had a girl get pregnant in high school, a year older than me. And uh, and she would bring the baby to school. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you. Uh, I'm sure she loved the baby and she went ahead and had it and you might applaud that and I might even applaud that but it was it felt sad you couldn't look her in the eye it it, it that's how we felt back then and whether that was right or wrong I'm telling you I got no problem admitting um, that you know what I knew in 1987 or 88 about the world and seeing it as I do now in 2022 of course it's going to be notably different but I don't think Singh has this right in that Canadians are worried that all of a sudden reproductive rights are going to get taken away and the decision uh, and the choice for women is going to get taken away in Canada. I just don't think that's going to happen. Again, Stephen Harper was the prime minister for nine years and he never touched these things. Now, there are a lot of complex provincial laws. Let me lay that out for you about access. And I will in a second. Here's Jugmeet Singh again on getting access and why it's really difficult and why maybe, maybe, and I would agree with this, This is an opportunity to have a conversation to do a lot better. And we got to do that on a lot of fronts when it comes to health care and providing pharma care as well. But Singh, I think, has this part exactly right. Free access to contraceptives, including the morning after pill, uh, that would be a concrete step towards expanding access in a meaningful way. We know that the, the cost of contraceptives are prohibitive for a lot of people. It's too much. It costs too much. If you don't have a drug plan... It's something that's a serious question about your budget. And so having that concrete step in the spirit of our agreement, which is to move forward on pharmacare, would be a concrete way to send a clear message that we believe in expanding access, that we're not just going to focus on a right. So my understanding is you can go get an emergency contraceptive pill, an ECP, costs about $30, $40 at a pharmacy. I don't think that's that big a deal. And because how many times should you be utilizing it? The concept is, and there is a concept to this, okay? And listen, there but for for the grace of God go the rest of us, okay? I'm sure there aren't men listening who were born, let's just keep it in my generation, who were born in the 70s, maybe even the early 80s, and we say, whew, dodged a bullet there. We did something with someone, all by consent, all in the guise of a relationship, But we just came out, maybe fingers crossed, a little fortunate that there wasn't a hard conversation. There wasn't a discussion about uh, about a potential pregnancy. I had told you yesterday I had one discussion about it and it frightened me because I was 25 years old and I wasn't ready to be a parent yet. But I think Singh has this right about access, not just to drugs, but access as well to facilities and clinics in Alberta. I told my wife this last night. She was shocked. Three places you can go in Alberta to have the procedure done. They have abortion services in Edmonton and Calgary. That's it. That's the list. So you're talking about, what, getting on a bus, a train, having a friend drive you? It's not as easy as it was, and it wasn't. it's not never an easy decision to make for Jennifer Jason Lee in, in uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High when she tells Judge Reinhold, I'm going bowling, and goes and gets an abortion from the guy scalping tickets or whatever. 
but there is there is not a lot of uniformity among the provinces, and maybe we need to work that out. In the Yukon, Whitehorse General Hospital, that's the only place you can go. Now, I don't think they should be on every street corner either, okay? I don't think they should be, uh, you know, your cannabis uh, uh, stores are pretty frequent. I don't think they should be as accessible to women as, I don't know, sports betting ads are when you're watching television at night. I don't think those things either. The goal at the end of the day, we got to be honest about this, the goal is for there to be fewer abortions performed, okay? Abstinence may not work in that case. Uh, education may not even work in that case. But some of those suggestions are starts. And let me say this about Roe v. Wade as well, and I'll say this in a couple minutes' uh, time. By the way, our text line, 289-975-1640. Do you agree with Jugmeet Singh? This will never get touched by government. There's never going to be activists that come back. I know there's MPs that that will say, I'm pro-life. I know there's MPPs that will be staunchly pro-life as well. Uh, Sam Oosterhoff is famously one in the Ford government. There will never be enough of a movement to put this in the legislature. And you might say, hey, you don't you don't know that for sure. I think we do based on the amount of time that's passed. I do. Roe v. Wade has been contentious for 50 years. And I'm not sure. By the way, if you study Roe v. Wade, I'm not it's not the cleanest document. It leaves a lot of room for, you know, no pun intended, based on how the how the document came out. Leakage. OK, it's kind of a lousy tool um, for judgment of, of policy. And the perception that abortion rights were just one winning court case away from getting reversed has allowed this to let the most extreme voices on both sides. And, yeah, there are both sides of this issue. I know the one. I know the one. People who are deranged about abortion, deranged about it, who have meltdowns, who call women sluts, who don't want to give them access to birth control. They're terrible people using language like that, especially after when it's one of the most difficult decisions somebody could possibly make, even suggesting you can't make exceptions for incest or rape. Sorry, no, it's that, you know, you've made your decision. That's how it's going to go. And they stand on street corners and they wave giant placards with images of, of you know, babies and it's awful and they, and they shame women walking into women's health clinics. Those people are terrible. I'm going to double down, triple down on that every damn day. But I'll tell you this. There is an extreme to the other side. Unrestricted abortion, almost utilizing it as a form of birth control. You can make any decision you want at any time you want up until the moment of live birth. It's your body. It's your choice. And I think that amount of cheerleading is also a form of lunacy. I think it's ridiculous to applaud. There have been rallies in the States where they've, they've had women on stage talking about their abortions and they get applauded. Okay, Those that get multiple abortions have more applause. These things are equally wrong. You can't use abortion as a contraception. That's not what it's there for. We've got to provide access, but the goal at the end of the day should be less of these surgeries, less of these procedures. And I think those are important conversations. I'm no moralist, not by a long shot. I've got no religious affiliation, so it ain't coming from there. But the goal is to make sure that there are fewer of these conversations happening in homes. Is that, I mean, honestly, can anyone possibly disagree with that? 
289-975-1640 is your number via text. Five degrees now up to 16 later this afternoon. We'll uh, dive more into this issue uh, in a little bit. Check in with Shiva Siddiqui. We've got, uh, of course, what happened when coming up. And Andrea Horvath, the uh, leader of the NDP, who had opinions on this issue and contraception as well. It's part of her plan um, for uh, the future of this province. She'll chat with us at 7.15. we got a lot of things to get into with the uh, longtime leader of the Ontario New Democratic Party. Look, it's more a female issue than a male issue. It is, okay? All we can do, I think we need to listen. I think we get an opinion. I think we get a seat at the table. But Nadia's right uh, at the end of the day. Um, I think there have to be safeguards in place. We have to talk about access. These numbers from the Washington Post, um, do you think abortion sh- should be legal or um, or le- illegal, say, when there's evidence of serious birth defects? Illegal. Legal, I should say. 63% men say. 71% women say. Like, this is not this is not blanket men telling women what to do with their bodies. Women get a choice. They get a bigger say. And they're weighing in on these things. There is a large lobby south of the border on this front. We know this. Uh, Tori, I want to get you on. Thank you very much for waiting through the break. I appreciate the time. You listening and your phone call. Go right ahead. Okay. um, I've had two abortions. I'm I'm 65. Mm -hmm. And both of my abortions were after I had my children for two total different reasons. So, um, and I'm going to, well, I'm sort of shaking right now over this because I just can't believe that women would vote against the whole thing. Like I'm with Nadia. Yeah. So one was at Morgan Tyler clinic and one was at women's college. And at both places, I was treated fantastically. I had no problem to access. Dr. Morgan Tyler was the nicest man in the whole world. And without him and without women's college, my life would be different. And I am so, so grateful that they were there for me. I think people forget what that was like, uh, Tori. Mm-hmm. And you really thank you for being again listening and and you know and being brave and being who you are because this is who you are for for calling and sharing your story. But Henry Morgenthaler was. We forget how fraught those times were. We forget yeah. the threats to bomb clinics and we forget yeah. the violence that he faced and the violence women faced going uh, to his his clinics. He challenged a lot of what the law was at the time. And he's mm-hmm. a big reason why the law was changed by the Supreme Court in, in 88. And we haven't touched and, it since then in 35 and years. For me, that was, and for me, that was like 25 years ago, just to let yeah. you know, like time frame, time frame. But there was no, um, uh, like, I, there was nobody around the clinic, like, um, you know, preventing you to come in. I mean, 25 years ago, I forget when that was, but, mm-hmm. um, and all it was was a phone call. I didn't even have to get a doctor's whatever. It was it was just, you know, they made it. I'm not going to say easy because I don't want to make it sound like, oh, anyone. But they I was so grateful that they were there, you know, like because those are all different reasons why women have an abortion. There were women that were coming out when, you know, you're in the waiting room, bawling their eyes out. Yeah. When I came out, I cried and I cried because I was so happy and grateful because it's what I really needed and wanted in my life at that time. Yeah. When I bring up those those um, those deadlines, if you will, I, I'm shocked yeah. and, and I don't I don't quite know how to feel about it. So we're sort of feeling this out this morning that that PEI says 12 weeks and six days after that, you can't get it in our province. Like, again, we're looking down. Oh, well, we don't want to be Florida or Mississippi, but Florida. Ron DeSantis is vilified and you could vilify him for lots of reasons for saying 15 weeks or we don't allow it like that. Well, what is it? What is it in, in Ontario? 24 weeks, 24 weeks. And I think you'd concur. And I don't think this happens. So I I often think it's a hypothetical that people bring up to try and, 
get a prescribed answer. But but mm-hmm. the idea is, is Tori, somebody saying, well, what if a woman goes in at eight months and says, uh, I just I don't want to oh, be no. a parent. They don't do that by that That's point. They've happen. picked out no, a crib. I mean, they may have picked out a name. They may have found out the sex. Yeah, they don't. I that is not the form of, quote unquote, birth control. We're talking no, about that not. doesn't happen. I don't know what they're talking about. I'm telling you, you know what? If someone used it as that, it's one in a million billion. Like, you don't understand. Like, people don't understand. Like, yeah. like obviously, or else this issue wouldn't be coming up again. And I am shocked it's coming up again. Like, I'm almost, you've been yelling at the TV and the radio, like to my husband. I can't believe this issue is coming up again. Like, what is wrong with people? I'm shocked. But here's the plot. Here's the positive, because I think it I, I think in Canada, I know politicians are saying we don't want this to happen here. We don't want we don't want these safeguards and, and the access. I think we'll I think we'll tie up some loose ends and increase access. And we don't look, you know, yeah, and I know wonderful. Yeah. the goal yeah. is to have less women have to make this decision at the end Absolutely. of the day. And I'm, I'm not um, some oh. moral. I'm not Nancy Reagan no. saying, hey, just say no. Although I think that was about drugs. But either way, yeah. either way, I, I there's only so much we can do to to, you know, curb or prescribe behavior. And abstinence yeah. doesn't work as a strategy. It never has yeah. and it never will. But yeah. but we need to allow like when I hear that about Prince Edward Island, I'm like, that feels like it needs to be fixed more than we just leave it as is and say oh, everything's does. great we're so great in canada we know that about our health care it's broken right now in a lot of contexts yeah. and i didn't know that about other provinces like i mean it's very yeah. educational listen i always find 640 highly educational i'm i'm a i'm a long-time listener and i don't even listen to music anymore in the car it's always 640 you guys have educated me on so many things and i love you guys and uh, thank you for letting me share but i just want to say one thing if anybody out there woman or man thinks that anybody wants to have an abortion they are very very mistaken yeah. and thank god it's there for us when people who when we needed it yeah yeah so and you, and and, for, and we would thank say you for letting me on no we yeah. would say that for for all the people we, we uh we love and and that are, are, are in our lives i'm staunchly staunchly pro-choice but i want that i want me the too. access to be there tori but i also me want too. i think regulation is important and having people know Absolutely. limitations of time going in and and it, it eliminates some of these ridiculous hypotheticals yeah, i'll well, put it that in, way rules in general i mean the world needs rules yeah. You know what I mean? We can't. A society isn't isn't a society without 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 rules exactly. and police. You know what I mean? To it, it's just how much and whatever. And I can't believe it's being retouched. But like you said, and I and I learned that from you today. Other provinces, I think, need to um, to fix. Some hey, stuff. thanks for yeah. thanks for your honesty uh, and oh, your you're forthrightness, welcome. and thank you for the kind words about the show and the radio station. We really appreciate yeah, it. Here. You're welcome. Thank you. All okay, right, ha- have a great day. Bye. You're welcome anytime. Yeah. That's Tori uh, calling us. We saw this story. First of all, before we get to the story, Sheba, stars of the show today, uh, Tori for calling us. And Nadia was great also. But Tori told us a a story. A 65-year-old woman listening to the show had... 63. um, 63. I'm sorry. um, Had had two abortions. We didn't talk about the reasons why. But we talked about access. And I I will remember that conversation driving home today. I really appreciate her, her forthrightness and honesty. It's not an easy thing to pick up the phone and talk about. No, and she was amazing. You're right. Those two women. And here's what, here's, I'm going to say something that you and many of our listeners are going to hate. I never hate anything you say. Uh, you know, my, my eyes, I just, they have a natural roll to the top of my head when my eyes do that and I can't control it. It's a medical thing. But go ahead. I don't care what men think of abortion. I don't care. When you're able to push a human head out of your penis, then we'll talk. Then we can talk. Then we can talk about what's right to you and what isn't. But 
If you are unable to birth a child, if you don't have a uterus, don't come to me because really, I don't care about your opinion. I don't. It doesn't ruin your life. It doesn't take away from anything in you in any way. And all of these men out there, those those politicians down south who are t- complaining about this, I wonder how many of them have had people get abortions. But when they're on the other side of it, it doesn't affect them in any way possible. They have all of these huge opinions. I don't care. I don't care. So Tori and Nadia, thank you so much for calling in because I want to hear what you have to say. Yes. Because and- you're you're the ones who are going through it. What about women, quote unquote, down south who have very staunch pro-life opinions and don't want access? This is what you've asked me and every woman on the show who has come on today. This question. Here's the thing. Those are probably the same women who voted for Trump. They voted for this man who who said what he said and has done what he's done. And it's been. No, but that's not just in the last five years. Roe v. Wade's been contentious for yeah, 50 years. Sure, so they, so they sure, voted for Ronald Reagan for, or they voted for George for Bush. All women. I'm not speaking for all women. I don't know why those women vote that way. I don't know how. I'd love to know their age demographic. I'd love to know. I mean, I, actually, I don't care. I don't care. Okay. I just like I don't I don't care what so, men have to say about it. <laughs> No, I don't. I don't because you you have no idea what it's like to give birth to a child. You and I had this conversation earlier this week and you said, yeah. you know, in the third trimester and I'm like, what what you said, have the child and give it up for adoption. I personally could never give a child up for adoption that I have physically birthed. I just wouldn't and I know many people who have. I have a lot of friends who are adopted and I know it's it's a difficult thing and they had no choice. But personally I wouldn't be able to do but it. But many women couldn't go in in the seventh month, let alone the fourth or fifth month, and ask for that procedure. But many women could. There are some women who might not feel like they don't have a choice. For whatever reason, they might feel that way. And who are we to say, do this with your body and don't do that with your body? I just don't think that we have any right to tell anybody what to do with their bodies. But then you bring it up, mandates. Yeah, same thing goes for mandates, Brady. Same thing. I'll tell you a quick story. Last year on my birthday, I was born in February. Last year on my Happy birthday. birthday. Uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> I think we said my, it then. You don't get two of them in a year. But anyway, we said it then. Go right ahead. My kids had a huge celebration um, planned for my birthday. Okay. And my husband and I we were really excited about it. I'm like, okay, it's going to be a nice family celebration. I'm looking forward to it. It was during the pandemic. And I was six days late. Okay. I was freaking out. And so was. We led with that on the show at 8.05. You remember that? (laughs) We were both very stressed about this. So my birthday was awful for both of us. I had friends sending me flowers, celebrations. We, I don't think I cracked a smile the whole day. And then. Ta-da, the very next day. So personal story might be TMI, but I'm telling you just the feeling I so, had. So all it, these thoughts I had in my head, like, oh my God, I don't, I can't be a mom again. I can't do this. I'm not ready for this. I would have done it. I would have done it. I would have birthed that child. But I'm telling you, the thoughts that you have. Oh, the you're panic, maternity leave right now? In 20, you get all of 2023 off? But I'm telling, oh my God, Brady, we don't have time for this conversation. <laughs> We don't have time for this conversation. I know we don't. It sets women. It's so hard to, to, that first year of your, it's, okay. But you say this. Now you say this, and I'm not going to talk. These are, this is, again, there's about two or three topics that nobody can really talk anybody out of. They feel how they feel, and that's that. But if you and I were, if you and I were a couple, and we were in our early 20s, we were the same age, and we found out that you were pregnant. I didn't say we. Because I, I, you made it very clear that only you can uh, push the thing. 
I, anyway, um, and I said to you, and you didn't want to have the baby, and you didn't. And I said, we can make this work. Here's how we do it. Here's my support. We'll do this. It's right out of Madonna's Papa Don't Preach. Everything that happens in the song happens in real life with you and me. <laughs> oh my God, we're quoting But I, but doesn't, you're not going to go, you don't get a say, you don't get a, you'd listen no, to me. You, you would course, listen to me about course, it. But it is my decision. It is my body that's going to go through it. It's my body that's going to do. What are you going to do? You couldn't even cut the cord in the hospital. That, I'm an exception to the rule of, yeah, for, for being squeamish. We're talking about you and I. We're talking about you and I. I'm saying <laughs> you didn't no, know I'm, I was squeamish before you started dating me. It is important to <laughs> to talk to your partner about it. Sure, have that conversation, have that dialogue. Mm. But in the end, it is a woman's choice. And it is a life-changing choice. It's a change and for she, the man as well. And she needs to make it. Big change Not for the always, man. Not always. Not always. Yeah, Most not of the always. damn time. Now we're no, doing percentages? I, yeah, I think we should do percentages. Most of the damn time? Should, uh, it really, the most important question we could ask based on all this seriousness is if Glenn Close had had, had the baby in Fatal Attraction, <laughs> could Michael would Michael Douglas have visited it every two weeks or would that not have been cool with Ann Archer? These are important These movie are questions. Old. I don't know. This is great. And if she, hadn't gone, cra- great if she hadn't gone crazy and attacked him before drowning in the bathtub, Gord. Talk me to out, me. Gord. Give me another male. male okay, give, I need two. I need two males here. I need some backup here. No, no. I'm Gord, Tom I Cruise. I need, I need quiet, Anthony Gord. Edwards here. Talk to me. Wait, you can push a human head out of your penis. <laughs> That's when we'll talk about. This. I, uh, I, you know, I, I think, I think medical science will come a long way in the next twenty years. So let's see. <laughs> you know, let's see what happens. The world's changing considerably. <sighs> Let's breathe it out and uh, come at the same time. That's right. <laughs> that's a good that's a good sign. We've got uh, a lot of coverage leading up to the June 2nd provincial election. You can feel a little more electricity in the air. Uh, I think people are turning on their TV more, listening on the radio, and we're very pleased uh, to welcome on the leader of the official opposition in Ontario for the last four years and the leader of the Ontario NDP for the last 13. Andrea Horvath joins us on Toronto Today. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for making the time for us. Hey, my pleasure, Greg. Thanks for inviting me. When I t- say 2009, you're like, what? So you're looking over your shoulder. Did 13 years uh, just fly by? Did uh, <laughs> that just whiz past me? But it is. It's really something. It's really something to run a party for more than I think that's that's really unbelievable, isn't it? Well, you know what? It's been uh, it's been an honor and a pleasure. And uh, I've been doing a lot of work in the province. I know this province from one end to the mm-hmm. other. And I'm excited about this election. Um, you've got, uh, obviously, you know, I was talking about the polls earlier on. Do you have to find that balance, Andrea, with polls? You can't completely ignore them. You need to see the writings that you need a little oomph in and a little push in, but you can't, especially 28 days out. So much can change. It's very liquid. Uh, it's very fluid. You can't oversell it. Do you have to find that balance with looking at the numbers and strategizing from there? Oh, sure. Absolutely. And, and, there, and the polls always bounce around, as, as you've identified. And, and you remember that phrase, elections matter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we're in that spot now. But, you know, one of the things that's a common thread that we've seen is that in all of the polls, the majority of, uh, of respondents are saying they don't want to see Doug Ford have a second uh, kick at the can because he's hurt so many people and cut so, so deeply, even during a pandemic. And so that hurts families, right? That costs people money. And uh, and that's why that's why we're talking to folks about how we can get together uh, and make sure that uh, that we we defeat Doug Ford this time. And as the official opposition going in with 40 seats, uh, we're, we're certainly in a position to do that. 
What makes the NDP more ready to govern than the Liberal Party? If people do want that alternative to Doug Ford, and I talk to those people, they're on my street, they call the radio station, but they're not sure who to choose. Why should they not choose the Liberal Party? Well, I think people were pretty disappointed with the the fact that the Liberals had 15 years to fix the things that matter most, but they did the opposite. And that's why they they went down to seven seats. They didn't even have party status uh, in the legislature in these past four years. And so... We saw what they did with healthcare. They cut and squeezed until they brought us health, uh, hallway medicine. They sold off Hydro One and jacked up our hydro prices. People don't forget the gas plant scandal, which was so cynical, and it was about liberal seats and not about good policy. So that's why they ended up where they ended up. But how can you trust them to fix the very things that they broke? That's what people are telling me. I just don't trust them. They have 15 years. They broke the things that Doug Ford made even worse. When he started cutting, because conservatives always cut when they get elected, um, and, and that's why we're in a bit of a mess right now. Did you find it more difficult to be critical of the budget last week because people looked and said, this is not a budget of austerity. It's a it's a getting out of a pandemic budget. The spending the spending amounts are the spending amounts. I, I guess, yeah, we could question whether what gets cut if you're going to spend on A, B and C, you got to cut D, E and F. But it, I, I thought it would be a difficult budget for both you and Mr. Del Duca to be harshly critical of. What were you critical of in the budget? Well, first of all, it wasn't a budget. If it was a budget, we'd be able to debate it in the legislature. Uh, it's a platform. Uh, and I think what Doug Ford's trying to say to people is, you know, just trust me uh, and give me another term. The problem is when they get elected, they do go to cut. And it, it was interesting to watch as the, uh, the Minister of Finance really squirmed on budget day, not you know, not committing that this, in fact, would be their budget if they got to, if they got elected. And that's that's that says to me that there's something, um, you know, there's something not right afoot there. Andrea Horvath, that's our guest on Toronto today. Um, I thought the Liberals made a splash when they said they'd buy out long-term care homes. I know this is a, a special issue for you. And they would buy out privatized long-term care homes. They'd wait for leases to expire, take them back so there'd be no privatized long-term care. The NDP hasn't made that promise. Is it, Do you look and say the numbers just don't add up? We can't get there by 2028? I know you want less privatization in this industry. How do you get there? Oh, on the contrary. In fact, for years now, we've been saying we'll get the profits out and the care back in. We saw what happened in long-term care, the horrifying tragedies that occurred during COVID-19. But the reality is a lot of that neglect, a lot of that lack of care has been happening for decades. I don't know how many times I've toured this province trying to get the liberal first. Uh, and then, of course, the conservatives started cutting long-term care when they were elected. But when the liberals were in office for 15 years, we were pushing them constantly to stop privatizing, uh, to get the standards up, to pr- provide more inspections, to uh, to really take uh, a hard look at what was wrong in long-term care. You might remember that nurse uh, down in southwestern Ontario who, 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 who literally killed people in long-term yeah. care. And they wouldn't do a full public inquiry to, to, to dig out all of the real problems in long-term care. So, yes, we have for a long time said profits have to come out of long-term care. The Liberals, this is new to them because they had 15 years and they privatized even more of long-term care. But look, people want home care. People want to stay at home and get the services in that they need. Uh, and that's the best place for them, right? I mean, it's, it's really a, a jarring experience to leave the place that you, you know, that you love, that you've lived in for 20, 30, 40, 50 years and be shoved into some institutionalized setting uh, where you don't know anybody, where you, where maybe they don't speak your language, they don't mm-hmm. know your culture. 
we can provide way more home care for people to prevent uh, them being forced into long-term care prematurely. And that's the humane thing to do. So we're also looking at beefing up the home care system uh, and and making sure that it's not for profit and public as well. How do we pay? Um, how do we pay? PSWs enough so it ends up becoming a career. I was looking at some Scandinavian countries and oh, you know, sometimes to be Scandinavia they do a lot of things right over there. That said, and there's an appetite for it, they they pay their PSWs a salary, about 68 to 70,000 Canadian a year. I get that, you know, we want to increase pay by the hour, but I think you know how hard a job teaching is and education is. I don't think people would be, you know, a history teacher in high school for $20, $25 an hour. They wouldn't do it. It's it's harder work than that. But we're now, I think we've realized our eyes have opened wide to how difficult a job a PSW is. And we need to keep, we need to make it a career for people, not just a pit stop. How do we do it? Oh, Greg, you're singing my tune. I've been I've been saying that for a long time now, and and that's exactly what we do. We create standards that uh, that that ensure that we have enough staff. So so not only are these jobs not careers, sometimes PSWs are working at two or three different uh, facilities, nursing homes, uh, mm-hmm. our long term care, and uh, sometimes community care or home care as well. And that's what uh, was a big problem with the virus, if you recall, uh, the virus spreading between facilities. So we need to provide standards around care. That means numbers of staffing so people can actually have full-time work uh, so they don't have to, you know, go all over the place with uh, three or four different jobs to make a living. And, and yeah, we have to boost up their wages and benefits because, you know, their work environment is also the environment that our loved ones get cared for in. Could we get to a salary? I'm sorry to interrupt. Could we get to a salary and not an hourly pay at some point in time? I think that should be our goal, and I think that you're right. When you, when you look at the Scandinavian countries, they do have a lot of things right. Uh, and, and when we talk about, for example, long-term care, they've done some really great work around not institutionalizing people, smaller homes, uh, mm-hmm. places where people's culture and, and food and, uh, and, and their life can be, uh, can be celebrated and not, um, you know, not just stolen away from them. That's, that's what's mm-hmm. happening now. Andrew Horvath is our guest. I I think your party has the best plan for public education. I do. I think it's something to be proud of. You know I'm a massive advocate of public education. I'm so proud. My parents taught for four-plus decades each. But I think the unions, during the pandemic, I think there were a few games being played on a couple different occasions. I think they wanted the schools closed to make the Ford government and the education minister look bad. I know we got issues with class sizes. I know we got issues with online learning. But I wanted someone to step up in December and say, and I told Merritt Stiles that when she came on in December, I said, we need to say the schools should be open. I know we want safer schools, but we need to make them open. I think we should have gone back in the last five, six weeks of last spring. Did we at any point, Andrea, keep schools closed longer in retrospect than we should have? And certainly in January to control the virus. I think what we did is not make the investment to allow us to keep the schools open. I don't know if you recall, but early on, uh, the Minister of Education was saying that they were going to put 50,000 rapid tests a week in the schools. This was a at the beginning of the second wave, right? So over mm-hmm. the summer, that's the promise they were making. That didn't happen. Uh, they didn't deal with ventilation. I was shocking that even just uh, at the beginning of this year, they were talking about more ventilation repairs. Well, we're already into the sixth wave. Uh, so the reason why schools were closed more than in any other jurisdiction here in Ontario is because the government didn't want to make uh, make the investments. And yes, some of that meant class sizes being reduced, reducing the um, you know, the number of kids that are jammed into the buses. But had those things been done, we, we might have been mm. able to keep the schools open a lot more. 
Um, the mask mandates. Uh, I know you were on record saying Ontario lifted them too soon. You were worried the hospitals w- would be flooded. A couple other experts um, said that, that, that the hospitals would get overrun. That didn't end up happening. Um, why do you think that was? On the contrary, in fact, a number of hospitals were sounding the alarm bells in Hamilton right now in my community. Uh, and I just talked to one of the CEOs of, uh, of the hospitals in Hamilton. Uh, they're, they're in really bad shape. They're on their knees. They, they're having worse, uh, a worse time trying to meet the needs of, of Hamiltonians right now than they have through the entire pandemic because their staff are all going off sick. They're going off with, the, with COVID. They're taking time to do the proper isolation. Uh, and then you, you layer on the, the hundreds and hundreds of people in, in that particular hospital system, but thousands and thousands across the uh, province who've left, um, who've left uh, health care. Mm-hmm. You know, the RNs, the nurses, the PSWs leaving health care because they're burnt out uh, and because they're not being, they're not being respected. They, they're not getting the... Uh, the respect that they deserve. They're on a, a low-wage policy from the Conservative government, and it, 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 it's, it's really causing them a, a lot of angst. So, in fact, a lot of the hospitals are still... We're, we've actually stopped uh, trying to get through the, uh, the backlog of surgeries and procedures in Hamilton because, because there's just not enough staff and uh, not enough capacity. I think two things about that, uh, and I think you're right about a, a lot of what you said. I think two things about that, one, one of which is, I think we need uh, general practitioners and physicians to open their doors again. I think that's a problem right now. And parents are taking the, the right way out. We've all had little kids and, and infants. And I've taken kids to emergency rooms because I think this will be faster than making an appointment with my doctor. This will be faster than an emergency clinic. So we are we're stretching emergency rooms at hospitals. There's no question about it. The other factor is I don't know that um, a, a mandate for masks would have changed the spread of the virus and putting cloth masks on five and six year olds. I don't see the hard evidence after 26, 27 months that it would have. St- and especially for kids that have that have acquired um, natural immunity after having had Omicron. To me, there's no reason for them to wear a mask for six, seven weeks. They're not contagious and they can't spread. Well, you know, I think there's a, I think there's a lot of different opinions in that regard. And I, and I think families and parents are split and even kids are what, what I think is heartbreaking is when when kids go into school wearing their masks because they you know because they think that that's what's going to protect them and then you know none of their colleagues or none of their uh, peers are wearing masks and then they get nervous and they get afraid and then there's peer pressure and uh, like it, it really is a bit of a, a difficult situation and you're right there's definitely a, a division in terms of opinion but when I talk to you know the the, the health experts and uh, and you know, those folks, when I talk to some of the school board uh, leads and some of the, the teachers organizations, absolutely, they're saying we should have kept the masks on a little bit longer. We should keep the mask on for kids because, you know, they bring the, the virus home and then grandma and grandpa are vulnerable. So but, but there's no doubt that the vaccines have been a, a huge, um, you know, a, a, a huge bonus. Right. I mean, they've sure. really made a big difference for us. Uh, but that doesn't mean people aren't still getting sick and ending up in hospital. Not the ICU so much anymore. Thank goodness those numbers are going down. Mm-hmm. But uh, but it's been it's been a tough call for folks these last couple of years. No doubt about call. it. No doubt about it. Um, listeners have asked me this, so I'm going to ask you. But I, I am curious about it also. So it is my question. I don't want to pin this on the listeners. Is there a policy <laughs> for NDP candidates and current MPPs to wear masks outdoor while canvassing or at rallies? Is that 
is that a policy um, of going around knocking on doors with masks on? I, I, I don't see NDP uh, candidate faces when they show social media of that. Is that a policy? Uh, well, certainly being vaccinated is absolutely a policy. Mm-hmm. And when we are going to a door, we don't know who's behind that door. So if it's a if it happens to be a door with a senior or somebody that's immuno, immunocompromised, uh, they might not open the door if you don't have your yeah, mask on. Yeah. So if you want to talk to the voters, uh, start with the mask, and then and then you can have the conversation. Uh, you know, is it okay if I take my mask off or 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 that kind of a thing? But it's about being re- really being respectful about who's on the other side of that door. Totally understand that, Andrea. Thank you so much for the time. Uh, I wish you the best during this campaign. I hope we get another chance uh, to chat before June second. I know what an important election uh, it is, and I know how much you care about this province and you have for so very long. Thanks for making the time for me. My pleasure as always, Greg. Take care. You got it. All right. Amber Heard did. uh, So this case keeps on trucking. I think we're in its fourth or fifth week. Johnny Depp's side did a ton of testimony uh, wrapped up. And this is week. Okay, so it is week four of a trial. Depp is suing Heard, his former partner, over a story she wrote, right? She wrote in the paper and she said, I'm a domestic abuse victim and this happened. But she never named the person, right? And Depp's like, Hey, it doesn't take Sherlock Holmes and Watson to figure out that she's talking about me, right? So he sues her for $50 million. But it's her turn to talk now, isn't it? It is. But here's the thing. He was most ticked off about not that she wrote it, but that after she wrote it, Disney dropped him from Pirates of the Caribbean. So he lost out on $40 million bucks <sighs> after she wrote that. So that's what they. that was the chain link there. Um, and so, yes, and then now, now they're in court and we heard him, you and I spoke about when he was on the stand and everything that he said, and we were hearing his side and we were both sympathizing with him a little bit. I think we were, we, but we were eager to hear what she had to say. So she was, she took the stand yesterday for the first time. And here's what she had to say. I, I, I didn't know what to do. You would think you, you would have a response, but I, as a woman had never been hit like that. I'm an adult and I'm sitting next to the man I love and he slapped, he slapped me for no reason. It seemed like, and I missed the point. It was that stupid. Second slap. I know he's not kidding, but I don't know what else to say or do. So I just stared at him. I didn't say anything. I didn't react. I didn't move or freak out or defend myself or or say, what are you doing? You're great. I just stared at him because I didn't know what else to do. And he slaps me one more time hard. I lose my balance. Um, at this point, we're sitting next to each other at the, on the edge of the couch, or I was on the edge of the couch. And I'm all of a sudden realizing that the worst thing has just happened to me that could possibly happen to you. I realize that I, I wish so much he had said he was joking because it didn't hurt didn't physically hurt me. I was just sitting there on this on, on this carpet, looking at the dirty carpet, wondering how I wound up on this carpet and why I was never why I never noticed that the carpet was so filthy before and I just didn't know what else to do. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know how to react. I just sat there thinking, how much time do I have to I figure out what I need to do? Because God, did he just hit me? It's terrible, eh? It's awful. And mm-hmm. I see online people are supporting Johnny. They're calling her a liar. They're, this is such a toxic relationship. And it's 
It's uh, it's the whole world. We're all watching it now. We're all watching their dirty laundry come out. And she talks about how, you know, there was a, there's a point in no, in every relationship. Brady, tell me if you agree with this. There's a point of no return. There's a, something that happens, whatever it is, whatever whatever your line is. When that's crossed, you can't go back in a relationship. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I would. I would. I I think sometimes you think. I, I sometimes think two things about a relationship. Um, one is, and I've been in one for 22 years now, so uh, the longest one I was probably in before that was, I don't know, three. So um, you get a different lens after you've been in one that long. Um, yes. I, I think you're so angry sometimes at your partner, but you're angry because you still know there's something there. So, But it, when you start to feel apathy, like there's yes. no point in emotion. I'm just dead. She sounds like somebody who is starting to realize – I'm going to die inside if I stay in this relationship, whether I'm whether of course the abuse is wrong. The the, the violence is, is awful. And it's important to put we got to point out too. he's not on trial for domestic abuse. He's not on trial for assault and battery. This is this is a court proceeding. He initiated not her to sue her because she he's implicating, as you said, she's costing him opportunities. So at that point in time, she's thinking what what's going on here? Uh, um, how did this happen? But I care enough to find out how it happened. And I'm going to I'm going to keep coming back for more and more and more. And he was coming back for more and more and more. I, I this doesn't seem one sided, but there's just never, ever, ever an excuse to hit a partner. There's never an excuse. You'll never. argue you'll you'll be mad. You can be mad for a day. Terrible things get like, you know, you can argue about parenting, you can argue about I'm I'm jealous you have a male friend, a female friend, whatever. This this stuff happens over decades of a relationship, but that's not what this is. That's not what this is. It's pure toxicity, like you said. Well, yesterday she described how he was the love of her life. And when he was sober, he was the most incredible man she's ever met. Kind, funny, generous, just a lovely person. But the minute he turned to alcohol or cocaine... Mm -hmm. Uh, or other drugs, he would just become the polar opposite of what he was. And that's when I think that brought out the worst in her, that brought out the worst to him, and they would just go at it. And now, and, and people are, you know, wondering if she's telling the truth about this. So they had a psychologist, a, a therapist that was dealing with them during their marriage. And this, they, this person was put on the stand and has said, yes, I can confirm that he did kick her several times. Um, so, I mean, this, what does that person have to gain yeah. from this? And you bring in the online component and it's terrible. Um, oh. Like, like I, I know, you know, you and I talked after the, uh, the Oprah interview with, with Harry and Megan, Piers Morgan was very, um, went in on Megan said, I don't buy a lot of what she said and laid out reasons why he didn't. But then he's getting like, oh, I hope your, you know, your, your wife is ugly. I hope your kid dies. Like it's Piers Morgan's you, an idiot. Fine, but you can't, but fine, but you, th but that's not a proper response to him saying, I question some of, I think she's damaging the monarchy in purpose. Oh my God. That's but because wait he got rejected. Wait, he asked her out on a date and she said, no, I'm not so sure about that. I think yeah, that's they, a, what they, he says they were friends, but really it was a romantic. He asked her out for dinner and actually they went out for dinner once and then she never went back out with him again. And I don't think he's ever gotten over it. Is it what she's work, like working on suits and he asked her out and so, yeah, so Harry's not in the picture? No, this is way, way, way before Harry. And she had friends in England. She would go back and forth to England. I think the, the friend that introduced her to Harry, that's who she's a good friend of hers. Uh -huh. And I think that's how they were all out one night and Pierce was there and they became friends. And I then, gotcha. 
Yeah, so I, okay. I, I, I just think Pierce Morgan. I'll go on the record <laughs> saying I think Pierce Morgan is an idiot. I think he's a self uh, a self proclaimed idiot. I think he but knows. But he knows sometimes what he's doing. He, oh, he knows he what he's knows. doing. Exactly. He wants to make headlines, so he says the most controversial things, and he's also a bully. Uh, so that's the whole different story. But with Amber and Johnny, it's, yeah. I was watching it and I just felt like, you. Could, yeah. like, how did you guys get to this point? And we're all glued to it, the whole world. Uh, this- yeah, I, I don't know which way a decision goes on. And that's the most fascinating thing. I can't see him winning. I can't see her winning. This is like that couple that you're like, I don't think they're going to break up, but I don't think they're going to get married. <laughs> like it's and, a, they're in no man's what, land. We got to We got to. Yeah. Here's what I don't like is that I, I did have sympathy for Johnny two weeks ago, but now I see that him and his lawyers have this little plan that every time she says something, they intentionally start laughing. So, yeah, I mean, I think they're problem. trying to intimidate her in yeah. some way, but looking all innocent about it. So they'll just start laughing, I think, to throw her off her game mm. when she's on the stand. I think they've got a jerk move. Thanks for listening to Toronto Today. We'll be back with a live show tomorrow between 530 and 9. You can hear it on the Radio Player Canada app and at 640toronto.com.